You are listening to iFanboys Talk Explode with writer artist Tim Seeley. Hey, this is Josh Flanagan from iFanboy.com. I am here with Tim Seeley. How are you doing tonight, Tim? Very well, sir. How are you? I'm, I'm good. Uh, I have been thinking that you would be an interesting person to talk to for a long time, so I'm glad we're getting a chance to do this. Um, but you think I'm interesting. So, yeah, let's see if I can pull up. <laughs> that sounds like a bad come online. <laughs> I think you're very interesting. <laughs> Which uh, could mean you're ugly or stupid. Or yeah. It could still be interesting to be a whole lot of terrible things. No, what it means to me is that when I look at a lot of the paths in comics, uh, I think you have a pretty unique one. I, I spend a lot of time talking to creators and and sort of you know looking at the careers that people have built around them. And you are you've done a lot of things, and a lot of them I, I don't think are the sort of typical. Uh, routes that a lot of people take. You're a writer, you're an artist, you know, you've created stuff, you've done work for hire stuff and, and all sorts of things. Um, so that's what I meant. We're going to talk about that stuff. That's great. <laughs> so um, I guess uh, one of the things I guess I like to get started when, when we start having these kind of conversations is to just sort of see, uh, you know, what's your origin story in comics? Where did you, uh, you know, how did you start making comics and what, you know, what made you want to do that? Um, I mean, I, you know, I grew up in central Wisconsin, so uh, it it was either like, you know, being a sports and sort of outdoor stuff or you had the other choice of like being kind of a nerd. Um, so I chose the nerd route, but, uh, um, I kind of got in comics that, you know, like really early, like five or six, even before I was reading a lot, I was just really into comics and I used to, used to make my mom read me my Spider-Man and Hulk books, um, over and over again. So I always was really into it. And, uh, my dad was always kind of a doodler. So he would always draw. Um, so, the kind of the, all those things kind of combined to be something I wanted to do, and then by the time I was like, you know, a teenager, I was making my own comics without any really idea of how you were supposed to do it, but you know, just drawing stuff on time paper and taking it to the local print shop and print it up, and I just kept doing it, um, you know, even beyond like while my friends were like finding other things to do to be interested in like guitars and stuff, I was still still making comics and um. Then when I got to be, uh, you know, in, in college, um, I did strips for the paper, and I kind of met a lot of other cartoonists by taking my, you know, strips that I'd done and putting them in the book and taking it to, you know, cons and um, just trying to sell little, you know, little homemade mini comics for a buck, and um, that kind of helped to uh, give me an idea how to do that sort of stuff, you know, as far as cons went. So I started publishing actually publishing a, a comic, a science fiction comic that I was working on and, um, you know, took that to a con met, uh, Josh Blaylock and a bunch of other people in comics at the time that were sort of doing the indie stuff. And then Josh and I started working on, um, a project together and, you know, all through college, I kind of tinkered with that stuff until he got the sort of big idea to do the GI Joe comic. Cause he thought, you know, there's some eighties nostalgia going around. So, when he got the rights to that, he uh, called me up to come work for him. So I came down to work as an editor first, and uh, after the artist was really late, I got hired to be the artist on G.I. Joe because I was there. Um, and then I just, you know, th- that was 10 years ago, and that's more than that. No, 12, 11 years ago now. 
So well, he wasn't wrong about the '80s nostalgia. What's that? He wasn't wrong about the '80s nostalgia. Yeah, we yeah. Can, we... You know what I think? It's weird when we when I think about it now because when he got the rights to that, the the basic idea was that GI Joe was a broken property and that no one wanted it and it had been sort of squandered. And uh, he got the rights for a song, and then you know, of course, like that stuff was huge. And if that eventually, I mean, I don't know how directly I would say this was, but eventually Hasbro got movies out of that stuff. So, you know, that it took somebody to sort of prove that mm-hmm. there was a lot of fans still for GI Joe as a comic and stuff. What were you going to school for? Um, I was, I have a degree in, uh, like a BFA in, uh, graphic design and illustration. But in my school, you could kind of, focus on something so i did mostly you know comics and illustration sort of stuff um and then you know as a backup graphic design even though i have never liked it particularly (laughs) (laughs) um now when did you sort of i guess start taking seriously the idea of doing comics or would you have said like at any point you you started really paying attention to i guess how they're made how they work the you know storytelling and stuff like that Like, I don't remember, like, it it seems like it was uh, pretty much the moment I found, you know, it was like an issue of Spider-Man. For some reason, that was when I, the moment I decided I liked comics was the moment I decided I was going to make them. Mm -hmm. I don't think there was any sort of, but I mean, you know, it as a profession, is it as as an art form, really sort of became something I got really interested in, in, you know, early college, late high school, um, and, you know, that was sort of, it was that era where you sort of, or sort of realized there was something beyond the superhero stuff and, mm-hmm. and that there was a, um, you know, that there was art to storytelling and that there was a business behind comics. But, I mean, even, you know, all that stuff, I don't think I was even prepared, you know, for, for 10% of the reality of working in the business. <laughs> and, um, you know, one of the reasons Josh hired me to work at Devil's Due was that, while I was working at a children's book company, I was also doing putting together a book myself. Um, I was doing a book called Love Buddy and Mr. Hell, and I was going to self-publish that. I was doing, you know, um, promotion for it and stuff. So I think part of it was Josh was like, well, I know you can put together a book and get it lettered and, you know, so help me do that, you know? So, um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of that was just learning on the fly and or just pretending I knew how to do it. And then when I didn't, just learn then, you know, which I think is what everybody ends up doing all in all of adulthood, but we don't realize it until later. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. I mean, you never want to turn an opportunity down yeah. and you know, it, it seems like, you know, high pressure stuff is the best way to learn anyway. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Around what time or around what year was sort of that when you just sort of started working in comics? Cause it's, you know, the sort of late 90s, early 2000s was a weird... 2001. I mean, yeah. Joe came out the day after September 11th, and then... <laughs> I wrote a pick of the week for it, I remember. I think it may have yeah. been patriotic-influenced. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, I guess it would be around five issues later, I was working at Devil's Due. So, June, it would be like June 2001, and mm-hmm. then moved here in that July. And then, yeah, so it was, you know, 2001, 2002 um, was when it became like a full-time job. And it's been that way since. Have you, have you, were you doing your own uh, projects on the side at that point? No, I mean, I was always kind of kicking stuff around. I mean, th- at the time I was working at Devil's Due, you know, I was 23, 24, and I was, you know, sort of just out of college. And I moved to Chicago to, to work at Devil's Due. And so, like, the, the, 
I was working at Devil's Due doing comics all day, and then at home I was like, oh my god, I'm 24 and I'm in Chicago. <laughs> so like, uh, yeah, there was so little um, actual comicing done at night at that time, but there's a whole lot of boozing and and uh, chasing ladies. But <laughs> but I was a kid, so um, but it, you know, it was while I was working for that stuff, I think it was it maybe took like a year or two when I was sort of you know. It was fun to draw comics, and it was fun to do um, a licensed book like G.I. Joe, which I had some affection for from childhood. But I started to get kind of frustrated with, you know, I mean, you're working for a corporate IP, and they can tell you what to do. And sometimes you – I mean, I certainly I would, I would disagree with that sometimes. So I started to want to make something that, you know, that it was mine and that I could do whatever I wanted. And um, so that's kind of how Hackslash kind of got going too. You know, and and having I also wanted something that I, I could write because I think, you know, as doing just the art on stuff, I was starting to go a little, you know, a little crazy to want to write something. So had you been, I mean, had you been sort of thinking up stories and, and having concepts and stuff sort of stashed away in the back of your mind before you started approaching like Hackslash? Yeah, I mean, you know, we published a couple more Love Bunny books um, at the time. And then Josh and I did a book called Core. That was kind of it was he wrote it, but a lot of it was a lot of us jamming on ideas together. Um, but I knew, like, you know, I I knew I got into comics to make comics, but um, I knew part of it was sort of having something I really wanted to do was have something that was mine. Um, and and it really, like my at the time, my my thing was I always wanted to have an image book. You know, I mean, I was seeing guys that I had sort of known in con at cons. Um, for years, like Kirkman and uh, and you know Jay Ferber and guys that I'd known of and or, or knew directly, um, coming out with stuff. And when Invincible came out, I was like, "That's what I want to do." You know, I want to have a book like Kirkman's got Invincible. Uh, so Hackslash was sort of my, you know, the, the for whatever reason when I came up with that idea, I was like, "That's it. That's the book that's going to be my Invincible." And then later, that's going to be my Walking Dead. You know. Mm-hmm. It was a really interesting time at that that sort of uh, my it's been my favorite time in comics I think is that sort of early 2000s where comics sort of stumbled back onto its feet and everybody in it like had grown up with sort of mainstream comics but realized they could do a slightly different thing. And those are all, you know, there's all the people yourself included who are sort of doing stuff today. Um, was there, was there anything, was there like a, I'm wondering if there was like a gateway comic for you, the, the thing that when you sort of broke away from, uh, reading sort of the superheroes that you sort of started with that you, you saw like another thing that could happen. Is there, is there like a book that you always sort of think of that showed you a different way? Yeah. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, um, when I was like 10 or 11, you know, my parents would, I lived in town without a comic book store, so they would drive us, you know, every once in a while, maybe two or three times a year, we'd go shopping in Green Bay, Wisconsin, which had a couple of comic book stores and you know, my parents would say, here's 10 bucks. We're going to drop you off. We're going to go eat at red lobster. Cause we didn't like seafood. And then you guys buy comics and do whatever you want. So if you know, 10 with 10 bucks at the time, like my brothers and I would go, well, let's max this out. Go to the quarter bin and get 40 books this way. Um, and a lot of times I would pick up just weird, um, you know, like the indie publisher stuff, black, this was just post black and white or no, just before black and white. Boom. Um, you know, Ninja Turtles and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I was picking up a lot of that stuff. Um, you know, I got like issue four or five, I think, of Ninja Turtles when in the tick, you know, when that stuff first came out. So um, I think that those were the ones that I sort of went, you know, I loved obviously the superhero stuff. And um, but this was sort of 
you know, seeing that, oh, you can do a sci-fi book that's, or you can do a funny comic. I mean, that, I remember that being a huge thing for me as a kid, you know, because I was so into, I was really into sort of like Mad and Cracked as a kid too, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, The Tick, I think, was just like, oh my God, you can do a funny comic. And, you know, The Tick was my one of my favorite books of, of that era, you know, just it was weird and hilarious and uh, you know, very off kilter. And, you know, so like stuff like that, Ninja Turtles. Um, and then like the, you know, the, and I, I would be able to get stuff that I probably shouldn't have read at all. Like really, <laughs> I remember having a Black Kiss issue when I was like 12, but I, which was probably way too young to see what I saw. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess, it, you know, it's like Ninja Turtles and Tick are probably like, those things that you go, wow, there's a room, there's room for something a little left of center and a little bit odd. And, you know, there's, it doesn't have to sort of be set in these distinct superhero universes for it to be really cool and really well done, really successful. So was that never really a, a goal to sort of, I don't want to say break into sort of mainstream regular comics. I know that you've done some work in that, but I think for the most part, people know you from, you know, from hack slash and just from, from sort of stuff on the fringes of that stuff. I mean, did, was there a point where you like, I want to go work for Marvel or DC? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. It's weird. I, I, re, I remember having a lot of affection for that stuff and having ideas for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly like once I was, you know, I, I did. I didn't decide to go freelance until I was pretty sure that I could work for Marvel or DC, um, because obviously that's where that's the reliable paycheck. Yeah. You know, at least when you first start out, you know, you really. I mean, st- I wasn't just starting out, but I was certainly first starting out freelance. Um, that that was definitely a goal then. I don't think it was always a goal, but it was also never a thing that I would be like, "Oh, I'm not going to work for the big companies." Fuck that. Because you know, I mean, if I had a story to tell, then I was okay with doing it. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I think certainly the main, the main goal was always to sort of be an image guy or, or, you know, do a dark horse book or, you know, just have something, you know, um, that's sort of a Hellboy, you know, it's like, <laughs> I think once Hellboy came out, I was like, I always want, I want to have a Hellboy, something that like, it was very distinctly yours and is very much your, you know, your aesthetic and your visions put on paper but it can also live on beyond you and, and have other creators and all that sort of stuff. How, uh, I'm curious how sort of, uh, preformed did, did hack slash come to you? I mean, was it, was it, did you sort of have this idea and, and pound it around for a while? Did it just show up one day and you're like, this, this is the thing that I want to do. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely the second one. Um, I kind of, I mean, as with just about everything I do, um, I sort of knew I wanted to work in the genre of like, I wanted, I knew I wanted to do something like a slash movie B movie type thing. Cause that's the kind of stuff that I was really excited about and that no one was doing. And then I knew I had a lot of, um, I mean, I grew up on that. That's stuff. your thing. Yeah. So I certainly grew up on it. My dad was a huge, you know, vampire movie fan, horror movie fan. So you know, we really watched a lot of that stuff as kids. And, you know, I hadn't seen the classics until I was in my twenties and I could, the classics like fucking citizen Kane. I hadn't seen, you know, cause I'd, I'd watched, I was too busy watching Terror Vision as a kid, you know? <laughs> um, but I knew I had, you know, I had some affection for something like that. And Mike Norton and I talked about doing a teen sex comedy comic mm-hmm. that would have a slasher component in it, and so we kind of kicked that around. And I didn't have a really good idea for it. And then, you know, when Hack Slash came, it really just came all at once. And I think it's it's really the first time that's ever happened, and it's never happened again. <laughs> but. Um, but yeah, it definitely came all at once, and then I think I was working on the script within a few days. So, um, 
you know, that was that, that, that I think that that's because that book was just so bubbling beneath the surface. Like it was, it basically was all the things I wanted to do at one time. Um, and just suddenly realized that I had a venue for doing all that stuff, you know? Did you see it as having the sort of longevity that it's had? No, no. God, no. I mean, you know, originally when I did it, it was just going to be a one shot. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, here's this great one shot I want to do. And if, if people dig it, I'll do more one shots. And then it was just this, you know, the first time, the first issue we put out, the sales were better than we expected. And, um, it just, it, it very much like seemed to find the kind of people, the people that were looking for a book like Hackslash found it right away. <laughs> and that was great. I mean, you know, that if I was looking around for a book and someone had come, someone else had come out with Hackslash, I'd have been super thrilled. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I was, you know, it kind of took over the last eight years of my life. No, Jesus, nine now, you know, just cause it, just the way that it, um, there were so many stories that I, the longer I worked on it, the more stories I came up with. And, um, you know, it, yeah, it just, it is a beast of its own. I, I guess if there's anybody listening who doesn't know what it is, can you quick, very briefly just sort of describe what Hackslash is? Hackslash is a, um, sort of, comedy slash horror slash action comic about uh, a girl who's essentially the girl at the end of all horror films who tracks down and kills the slasher um, type characters, uh, you know, sort of undead killers uh, along with a partner named Vlad who is sort of a mistaken for slasher kind of if Jason Voorhees was a nice guy. (laughs) Um, And it's been going for uh, eight years at this point. Um, And it's a, uh, uh, book from monthly from image comics. So there you go. And it's, it's, it's is there, is there, I mean, do you have an end point or are you just going to keep doing it Kirkman style? No, I mean, I have an end point and the end point came about a year after I started working on it. So the, the notion of what it was going to be. So mm-hmm. I've been working steadily towards it and I know when it comes. Um, so, I mean, it's definitely got to be, you know, I, I basically set up this ending that I knew was the ending but with the idea that I had to get there, but if it, if I if I got to any and there was still more stuff to do, I could come back to it. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I didn't want to like nuke my whole story and not be able to ever do anything with it again. But I feel like you know, there's only certainly you know the, the slash movie thing works great, but I don't want to overstay my welcome. You know, mm-hmm. it's really interesting because it's one of those things where. Um, it sh- the I'm surprised there wasn't another book like that. It seems it seems like and this is this is uh, no disrespect to the idea, but it seems like it's very obvious to, that somebody should have said, "Hey, people who like comics really like these kind of movies. Let's make comics like this." But it didn't really seem to happen that much, and you, you sort of grabbed that thing. Um, yeah. I mean, did, did it feel like that? Yeah, I mean, kind of. You know, I mean, uh, you know, you hate to do that thing that it's like that Mark Miller uh, self promotion thing where yeah. I can't believe nobody thought of this, but it is that sort of. I mean. Uh, you know, obviously every idea has been done and, and, you know, I hadn't seen Buffy, mm-hmm. the vampire slayer when I started hack slash. And now of course it's like, Oh yeah, it's kind of like Buffy. Um, but I mean, either way, it's certainly, you know, it seemed like there was something in the air at the time. And I think, um, you, you know, the, the, the slasher movie sort of stuff, the American slasher movie is very consistently popular in American pop culture. Even if it goes out of stuff a little bit, it's never really a fad, you know, like Japanese remix will come and go as a fad and 
and all these you know sort of things will come and go as fads in, in American film, especially in horror. But the slasher film and the zombie film are sort of like the most consistent, um, you know, permutations of the horror film, and they 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 always come back in a new form. I think they're so flexible that it's you know it's easy for them. So um, that was always sort of the I think what works about Hack Slash is that those I mean in addition to it being really about the characters more than anything, it's the fact that slash movies never really go out of style. Mm-hmm. Did you ever get to thinking about it in terms of I, this is, I, mean, I, I say this because this is the kind of thing that I think I would think of if I was doing the book. Like I would be like, well, how can I deconstruct it? How can I do something different? Or, or do you feel like you want to stay within the genre and just keep having fun doing that? Do you even think of the, in those terms of it? I mean, I think in a way the entire series has been a deconstruction, but you know, not so like, and, and a lot of it is sort of like, at least a lot of times it's parody. Um, mm-hmm. Because, but it's, it's really done out of affection. It's not sort of a, you know, Sla- an accusing way. But Slasher films are, are kind of parody just by existing. Like, it, it feels like it. It's like this thing that is a parody and isn't at the same time, I guess. Yeah. I mean, and, and certainly, like, you know, Scream had predated it yeah. by, by 10, you know, five years or whatever. So, it was never the goal to like try to explain or um, sort of validate like the need for why these things exist. It was always just sort of like let's live in this world that they've inadvertently created by doing you know twenty years of B movies and slasher films and exploitation stuff. Like it was always just about living in that and really in sort of you know one of the things I think people consistently complain about with slasher films is that there isn't really a lot of character to it. I mean, it's basically done for the the scares and the laughs and the nakedness and that's it. But so I think slash rather than being a deconstruction or a parody uh, by itself was always sort of meant to be, well, what if we put great characters in this genre that is often sort of criticized for not doing so mm-hmm. and, and, but not be ashamed of the fact that it's, you know, it's a B movies, ex, you know, exploitation pervy fucking thing, you know, like let's be okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious. One of the mechanics of of sort of horror movies and slasher movies is is that sort of uh, silence followed by the scream. You know, the music sting or the audience jumps or whatever. And that's that's really difficult to do in a comic book. Is that sort of a, a thing you thought about or you've tried to get around? Oh, you mean the fake scare? Yeah. Or well, no, I mean whatever whatever the sort of scary moment, the startling moment is. It's really difficult to get away with that in a comic book. It's a, if you're reading a comic book, you're not going to jump. And for a lot of people to go to a slasher movie, that's the moment that they wait for. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I mean, obviously, film and, and comics are different things, but I think you just have to. And I think maybe it was an education very early on in, in doing hack slash that's helped me write other stuff. Is just you know recognizing things that don't translate well in comics and just not doing them just avoiding them and trying to instead take advantage of what comics are great for um so yeah i mean you know sound is obviously not something we can do so so we just don't even try we don't we're not not trying to that's something that film has used to manipulate you and make you scared and to great effect and it's not something we can do but we can control you know sort of the mood and we can do all that sort of thing and make you on edge by doing something unsettling because um, something unsettling in a comic is is certainly just as unsettling as as it is on film. Um, I mean, yeah, it's you know, novels don't have that that ability to have a soundtrack either. Mm-hmm. Obviously, horror worked great novels for hundreds of years before 
film came around. So, um, yeah, it's just, you know, instead of trying to fake it, I think our thing is just to, you know, really revel in being a comic book and, um, take advantage of the stuff that, you know, I think certain things look better in comics than they ever do in film. And, and so, you know, we try to take advantage of those things. Um, it's, and, and, you know, not, not try to mimic the medium and, you know, mm-hmm. just the, just the genre. So I guess moving on, you, you know, you, you've done hack slash for a while. You, you get known for that. Um, you know, wh- how did you sort of make the transition to doing sort of some work for hire to that, or that come, you know, along with, along with the book? Or was it a thing that you sort of sought out? Um, you know, so as we're going to devil's do for for the, all that time, and I was basically just doing all the. As a staff artist, I was drawing whatever, you know, was the newest project that sounded best to me, and I kind of got first pick, which was awesome. So I'd be like, oh, I'll do Dark Elf for Halloween, or I'll do, you know, I'd see a project that Josh had licensed, and I'd say that would be the one I would do. And then after a while, when you know, it it became clear that like the salad days were, were winding down and, and, you know, um, that's when I sort of started looking to do stuff at Marvel and DC. And, um, I first just submitted stuff as a, as an artist. Yeah. Yeah. That was actually the other sort of part of my question is, you know, yeah. So, I mean, most of it was just me sending in art samples and, um, I got hired by, um, by Mark Panicki at Marvel to do some, uh, some shorts and oh, some X-Men stuff, um, some X-Men Wolverine stuff. And uh, then I ended up, you know, moving on from that to do Exiles. And I kind of, because I was writing at the time and doing some other projects, I kind of was the fill-in guy, mm-hmm. which was great because I didn't have to work. You know, I'd do two issues of something and then um, go back to working on Hack Slash or whatever, you know, I was writing and then get a couple more issues of something. And it worked really well. Um, you know, it was hard to establish an audience that way, but you know, you're basically just getting your art out there and I don't know how many people that were reading Exiles were going to run over to see my hack slash stuff anyway. So, um, yeah. And then, so one of the editors there, Jordan White, who was assistant to Mark, you know, he was a hack slash reader. So he said, well, what would you do if you were writing some of this stuff? And, um, and that's kind of how I started kicking around writing, uh, pitches for Marvel and eventually ended up working on Ant-Man Wasp, which I wrote Andrew, um, and that was sort of the first thing I wrote for them. And I, I did a few other things, but I haven't written a lot of other stuff for Marvel. But, um, but yeah, that was like kind of a little dream come true to get to do a sort of superheroes thing set in the Marvel Universe and get to write it and draw it. Um, and, I, I mean, maybe to my detriment, I'm, that thing is definitely all me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, whether that was good or not, you know, um, I, was, I was happy with it. So. Did you find that it, it all that any of that stuff drove uh, drove people to your your creator own stuff or, or not? Yeah, I think you know I think any it's weird because with the with the commercial stuff that I end up drawing, um, you know, I've, it's you rarely on it long enough to sort of put a mark on it, and I certainly have noticed that like at least the current comic readership tends to, and this is it. it I mean, it is what it is, but mm-hmm. artists tend to be somewhat interchangeable to a degree. Um, they don't really seem to mind if right, you know, artists shift around and one issue is done by one guy and one's done by someone else. Um, they've been trained to do that a little recently. I think, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Or it's the other way around. I mean, it's, if, if you know, no one cares, they don't, the Marvel do it. And if Marvel do it, then no one cares, I guess. But, mm-hmm. um, but certainly like the writing stuff, every time I do, I, I think the, the people are sort of more into the, the voice of the writer than they had been in a long time. And, um, 
you know, even when I wrote, I wrote stuff like G.I. Joe versus Transformers or, or, you know, just weird stuff like that, you'd still see people that would follow you to, to whatever else you did. Um, and certainly because, I mean, Hacksaw is a horror book and it's not super easy to say, oh, I liked what you did on Ant-Man Wasp, I think I would enjoy Hacksaw, but certainly because there's both of those things had an edge of comedy to them, you know, then people I kind of see. The kind of people that like some a sarcastic, dark sense of humor might notice that that's also in Hackslash and was in Ant Man Wasp, so that that helped a lot, I think. Um, and so then the other side, you you also developing like you you sort of developed a writing career and an art career, you know, in both at the same time. But you've kind of been all over the place, all over the place with that. Is that? I mean, is that sort of? Do you get bored with doing one or the other, or or do you just like the variety of all those things? Um, I mean, the only thing that's been consistent, if, even just, you know, the only thing I've done pretty much the last eight years every month is Hexlash. Mm-hmm. And everything else has kind of been, you know, this three months I'm doing this. And, and you know, um, and it's usually not like, it's just sort of the way the ebb and flow of work in comics has been. Um, I've been around long enough that I know, I know someone at every company, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I guess when people think of something that, that, that might be good for me, they, they'll call me up or, or email me and, and ask me to do it. And fortunately, because I've been doing this long enough and I have a strong liver and I've been at every con bar <laughs> in the last 10 years, um, you know, people know kind of what I'm into and they can kind of, they think of what I can do and they're editors at all different companies. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's just, it's not necessarily me getting tired of anything because if it was that, I would definitely be done with Hackslash by now. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, it's the stuff that comes up, and so much of comics is just so like it's it's so transient. The jobs are so, you know, here's a four issue miniseries, or you know, it's not like uh, how it used to be where you know you could be on a book for for four years. It's just you get six if you're lucky. Yeah. You know? I mean, which is fine. I think maybe. Um, Maybe that's actually been my benefit as far as learning stuff too, um, because I've worked in every genre and I kind of have a pretty good idea of what things I I really enjoy making um, stories in. You know, which genres work best for me and stuff too. So I guess I'll never I'll never have that thing that I think uh, some guys like George. I remember George Perez talking about it, which was like, oh man, I just so burnt out on doing superhero stuff. I want to do something. It's like that won't happen to me, man. I've been all over. <laughs> I've done everything. So well, now I guess I guess it's probably a good segue to you know you you took over as uh, as writer on on Witchblade and there have been some very long runs on that. I mean, is is that kind of a that's sort of a different sort of long term? You're on it uh, indefinitely, right? Yeah, I mean, until people right, yeah, vote against me, yeah. yeah as far as um, we know, I mean, but have you thought about it in those terms? Like, okay, I'm I'm on this for a while, and I know you've been on Hackslash for a long time, but it's sort of a sort of a little bit of a different horse. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, and maybe part of what drew Top Cow to hire me to do it is that they know I have these nice long-term relationship with my ladies that I'm writing. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, Witchblade still kind of seems like a weird dream to me that I'm like, I can't believe I'm writing Witchblade and I'm on my, like, I, think I just wrote my ninth or 10th issue of that. So, <laughs> you know, no, God, more than that, 11th issue I just wrote of that book. Um, so, yeah, it's weird. It feels very much sort of, you know, that this is kind of what I was built to do, I think, <laughs> is to write something for a long time. So 
Um, I mean, I can certainly do three months in and out. I mean, it's comics. I can do it. But, yeah, I think I'm better in the long haul. I think I'm I'm a long-term guy, not a, not a one-night stander. So how did you – that's sexy. How did you approach it, um, I guess, from a – you know – they come to you as you want to watch right Witchblade. You say, yeah, how do you, did you approach it? Like, did you start to build a really long story? Uh, were you, I mean, were you very familiar with it uh, to begin with? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I read Witchblade in high school and then I think I dropped off somewhere around college. Uh, and then I picked it back up when Ron started. So, you know, 2004, 2005, I think I'd started picking up Ron's run. So I was pretty up to date. I think, uh, which helped a lot. I mean, I always been kind of, I always liked the Top Cow universe. I didn't, um, I was never a huge fan of the darkness, but I always liked Witchblade. I always liked um, Top Cow universe and stuff in general because you know it's that sort of, um, it's it's the sexy dark fantasy stuff. Yeah. Um, so which is kind of up my alley. <laughs> uh, it usually had less of a sense of humor than the kind of stuff I dig, but I, you know I always enjoyed it. So. Um, yeah, it was tough. It was, it was, you know, going into something like that with, with you know that everyone who talks about the book says, well, Ron Mars totally reinvented this character and took it away from being just a TNA book. And, oh, now you're the TNA guy. What are you going to do? <laughs> so, um, but, I, you know, I knew, I knew the long-term idea that I wanted to do. And I knew what I wanted it to feel like. You know, I, wanted to, I knew Ron's book had a certain vibe. And he had, he he stuck to it the entire time, um, which was really cool. And I knew that that was not the vibe I wanted to do because I don't write I don't write that kind of story very well. But um, I instantly, you know, when I was working on it, and sort of I instantly kind of knew the basic plot elements I wanted to get to. But it took me a little while to find the vibe of what it was. But once I found it, I felt really comfortable being like, all right, this is the new, you know, feel of Witchblade, and. Now I feel pretty good about doing that, I think. Was it your call to, I guess, it, it, it's sort of a reboot. I mean, everything sort of changed uh, when, when you took over uh, from what Ron had set up. Not in a way that got rid of everything that he'd done, but just sort of signaled we're, we're, doing, we're doing our thing now. I mean, was that, was, that, was that given to you or was that what you came that in with? That was all Top Cow, yeah. yeah. I mean, that was all Ron, basically. Oh. Uh, so when I, you know, when I kind of got the book and... Uh, we started talking about. They kind of had me pitch some ideas before I knew what the ending of Artifacts was. Uh, when when and Artifacts was a miniseries. Now it's an ongoing. But um, I knew before I knew the ending of Artifacts thirteen. I kind of came up with some stuff, and they said, "Okay, cool, that's not bad. What would you do if you knew this?" And they gave me the ending to that. And so then I kind of refigured um, the story around you know those new elements. So and I actually think that worked really well for me because that. That could that kind of gave me an underlying theme that I had to follow, which was kind of this person who was always very confident and very in control, even in a very strange situation, was suddenly like not sure things were right. They were seemed off to her, uh, so that kind of gave her a new, you know, a new edge to her character that that was more in line with the kind of people that I understand, mm-hmm. you know, when I write things. So yeah, I think it worked out pretty well. Cool. How how far ahead are you planned out? Um, basically up through 165, I've got a really good idea of what happens. And after that, uh, I'll have to sit down with the fellows and see what the next step is. But, uh, um, yeah, but I, you know, it's, I kind of come into it with like a, you know, every five issues I knew exactly what would happen. And then, you know, 
that would that I would keep it fluid to see what would. So I'm gonna have to start thinking again. <laughs> is basically what it comes down to. <laughs> Are you, I mean, but I assume you're getting to know everybody there, and it's probably getting a little getting a little easier to sort of see where where they can go and what horrible things you can do to them. Definitely, and you know, and part of my run is one of the things I really want to do is just give Sarah uh, new villains and recurring villains because one of the things with Topco Universe is being so tied together is that most of the characters within Ron's run were tied to, um, you know, the sort of artifact stuff and all that. And I just want to be like, let's just give her some new bad guys, like a completely new rogues gallery of unrelated stuff that, and it's in, in a whole new cast of, um, side care, you know, supporting characters. And over time, those characters are sort of, you know, I mean, I just wrote an issue that was completely dependent on a character that kind of doesn't show up until 158 or something. So like, it's very much about, you know, once you find a great character that you want to follow, they tend to write their own stories, you know? Mm-hmm. Cool. Now, at the same time, uh, you're part of the, uh, I'm going to call it unexpected uh, resurgence of, of the extreme titles, and you, you're doing um, Bloodstrike. Well, how did that come about? <laughs> the unexpected. It's, it is unexpected, especially in the, the format that it took, I think. Yeah. No one saw those books coming, picking oh, up heard. from where they left off. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's been kicked. I mean, it was talked about for a while as far as like, you know, Rob wanting to, Kirkman really wanted Rob to bring the, the stuff back and really wanted Rob to be part of image again. So, you know, as early as maybe last, I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe not, maybe 2008 or 2009, um, I would talk to those guys, you know, talk to Robert and talk to Liefeld and Eric Stevenson about something and I had for a long time I've had a pitch I had a pitch for Bloodstrike which <laughs> it's just the sort of right amount of macabre for me it was you know it was zombie superheroes that basically zombie superhero soldiers that get re- reanimated and sent back to do every mission so you were, you were reading this stuff when it was out oh yeah absolutely yeah, yeah absolutely um, you know that would hit right at the right time I was 13 14 I was you know I was really into that stuff um, but I mean with Bloodstrike I always had you know I had a vision for that one because it, it seemed to be written right for me. I thought, um, so I talked to Rob about it a couple of times, like, man, you gotta bring back blood strike and I want to write it. So I'd send him stuff. I'd send him some sketches you know, all this stuff and talk to my cons about it. And, uh, uh, so they knew that I was interested in it. So when the rumblings started coming about, you know, that they were going to do bring back Rob's stuff, I think I might've been one of the first guys called, um, and so I was working on Bloodstrike, my first script for that last March or April. So that's, you know, more than a year, basically a year before it came out. And then as time went on, you know, the other creators were, were asked to do stuff. And um, I know part of Eric's thing was to do a, a legitimate relaunch. I mean, you know, the DC 52 stuff, though it certainly was very good at hyping and stuff, it wasn't it's not like they really did what they said by bringing in a bunch of new creators. I mean, they, they use the guys that work there, you know? Yeah. And, um, this was Stevenson really wanted to say like, no, we got to really surprise people because no one's going to believe that Brandon Graham is going to be doing an extreme book, you know? <laughs> um, so that was, the, that was the belief from it right from the beginning. And basically the, the idea was to give us the books and say, all right, choose your people, you know? Um, so, which was, which is unheard of, I mean, yeah. you know, so that, that's kind of why I think each book has its a very distinct flavor because 
you know, each of us, the teams chose, you know, Joe Keating when he, for, for uh, glory picked his artist and his colorist and all that stuff. And as is, as did Brandon as in, and for me, you know, Bloodstrike, I, you know, I chose Francesco and the colorist and, and every, you know, the storylines and all that stuff. Um, not dictated by Rob whatsoever, mm-hmm. but he reads all the scripts and, you know, gets excited and gives his yay or nay or, and, uh, so far has only said yay. So if Rob Liefeld gets excited about something that you're doing, that has to be a, a, a wonderful amount of positive energy coming towards you. I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's good at getting excited. Yeah. I don't think anyone's surprised that Rob's an excited guy. <laughs> he's full of energy, but, uh, you know, it, it, what, what I thought was really cool was that there's this sort of belief that a guy like that does what Rob does and has done very distinctly for so long, like that he wouldn't get or like something like Brandon Graham's art, which is couldn't be farther from the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, Rob loves that stuff. Rob loves like new innovative stuff. It's, it's not as though Rob requires that everything look like he drew it, um, which is a total credit to that guy that like, it's not his concern that it looked like Rob Liefeld. It's his concern that it looks awesome. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, that's a real big surprise to me. And it, it was when I first heard it. And then I think it was really a surprise to the readers that, you know, this is the, this is profit. This is glory, you know, like, you know, and, and I think maybe I did the book most like, like the old book. I mean, I, I, I wasn't, you know, I mean, I, I'm a pretty weird dude, but, I don't have like as much of a distinct voice of, you know, artistic style as Brandon or, or Ross does. Um, and I think my book is almost sort of a love letter to that stuff rather than a complete reimagining. You know, was your audience, your 13, 14 year old self for you, if you're writing it kind of, I mean, you know, I, I guess one thing I really wanted to do with Bloodstrike was that it wasn't just, it wasn't focused on the action aspect. Like the action and the horror stuff happened a lot, but that was secondary to the sort of journey of this guy Cabot, um, who, you know, was basically sort of a, you know, symbol for, for all soldiers, which is get the shit kicked out of you, go home and then have to come back, you know, um, the, and the never ending mission. And, and so, you know, he's kind of that symbol for that sort of idea and in the sort of crisis of faith that it causes him to have that he he's been he's died and he didn't see you know a, a golden tunnel to another to heaven he he died and he came back and it looked the same and he had holes in his face and that's all he knows for sure you know so i wanted those to be like the focus of the book and then have the sort of macabre and the high action stuff be secondary but definitely you know very important mm-hmm. Now your your plate is. I'm I'm looking at this other stuff. We still haven't. <laughs> your plate's very full. <laughs> it is. So, it is so full. And uh, and and you're working with. Uh, and one of the things I'm I'm actually really excited about is revival uh, with you and Norton. Um, and and you guys are good friends. You you guys you share the studio. You work together all the time. And now you're you're doing a, a creator own book together. Um, what's I guess what's the short pitch for it? Basically, it's a uh, it's a town where for one day uh, everyone who died comes back for no explained reason. Uh, the town that it happens in is a small town in central Wisconsin. is put under quarantine by the government, who's afraid that uh, coming back from the dead will spread. And uh, the town is sort of forced to deal with their their you know formerly dead relatives and friends uh, walking around trying to get their lives back, and then. Um, it sort of focuses on two characters, a uh, 
a cop and her sister who have to deal with, you know, the pressures of, of a small town where no one can leave and uh, all the crazy mystery that happens when they try to understand why people came back. What's the what's the tone? Because I can see this being played a bunch of different ways, I guess. Uh, you know, it could be a family comedy. It could be, you know, it's a murder mystery. Not murder, but whatever the opposite of that is, mystery. It's actually a murder mystery. In the first yeah. Because there's a murder and then, you know, it kind of ties into this whole bigger mystery. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you solve the crime in a town where no one, where all these people have come back from the dead? So how is it working with somebody who you who you know so well and, you, and you're close to? Is that, I mean, I know you guys have worked together since Devil's Do. Uh, you know, I, I assume is the is the concept sort of you both came up with it at the same time and, and put it together. Yeah, I mean, kind of. You know, it was we knew we wanted to work on something together, and um, I knew I didn't want it to be too far outside the wheelhouse of what I knew worked for me, which was Hackslash. And but I wanted it to be a di- very different flavor. So, you know, while Hackslash is sort of a funny and um, you know, uh, sexy sort of exploitation thing. This is a straight crime sort of horror story. It's played pretty serious. I mean, there's there is moments of humor, but it's played really pretty seriously. Um, and it's basically, you know, Mike and I knew we want to do something that we we both could bring something to. And uh, I kind of had an idea for for doing this um, small town crime story, and I, I had an idea for a supernatural thing. We kind of combined them, and then Mike provided the glue by sort of coming up with some ideas that we used. He really wanted to do something that featured sort of regular normal people, but also had a big overarching mystery, sort of like Lost. And that was one of the things that we we kind of kept coming back to is that, you know, if we, if we knew the ending of a big story like Lost, instead of not really knowing, you know, I mean, Lost was a good TV show and everything, but they did not know the ending when they started. But what we basically said is, what if we know the ending when we begin, but we play out a show that's a mystery story, you know, and have a great payoff because we know exactly how it ends. Um, so yeah, I mean that's kind of how we we gelled on this idea. And once we started rolling on it, you know, the characters came pretty fast. Um, a couple of ones that are ones that I had for other projects that just sort of never came together. So they fit in really well with um, with this world we made up. So how how is it working? I guess and you guys are used to sort of working in a studio situation, but you know, for most of comics, nobody ever sees anybody. Yeah. So you guys are all sort of working in the same room. Does that change things around a little bit? Yeah, I think it makes it a lot easier. Um, we go to lunch. I mean, basically, you know, Mike and I and two other guys that work with me, uh, we go to lunch every day. And on the way walking to lunch, we always talk about ideas and stuff. You know, if we're working on something, we have problems, we we talk it out. Um, you know, there's scarcely anything I've worked on in the past, you know, two years since I had the studio that doesn't have the influence in sort of, some ideas from my studio mates. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, it's great working on something like revival where, uh, Mike and I will talk about it at lunch, have some ideas. I'll write out some scripts, send it to him. He'll say, I'm not sure this works. And then I'll change it. You know, it's, it's really so far we've had no conflict about it. Um, and it's, it's really just been a re, sort of a reeducation of me saying, okay, you know, no ego here. If they don't like, if my partner in crime doesn't like it, then I change it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, or we talk it out, you know, if I can't convince him, then it's not good. So that I think it's actually, it's what made those original bullpen created Marvel comics work. You know, that there's, there's an energy that you can capture when two people are jamming, you know, right in the same space. So, 
Yeah. It was something I talked to Ron Mars about when he was talking about sort of the, the good side of cross gen was yeah. that actually having artists and writers be around each other was, you know, remarkably uh, transformative, I guess, in that way. I imagine that you have a wall that has all of the plot points, like a big board. That's in my mind. That's we how do. that works. We have yeah. a whiteboard. Like wow. Like a house. Yeah, we have a whiteboard and um, it's, you know, we have it. Most of our notes are now on little piece of paper tacked about uh, my desk and stuff. But yeah, we got a whiteboard so that we could sort of plot things out and figure out ideas. Um, but I mean, that's, yeah, there was, I think the, the TV writer's room is sort of something that, you know, comics doesn't get to utilize very often, but there, it, it's a great method. If you can get people with, you know, who can put their egos away and, and just be concentrated on making the best product, mm-hmm. you know, the best story and not care about whose idea it was, you know, I think you can make some great stuff. Do you work, do you work at the studio? Like, like, do you sort of go in in the morning and come back at night? Do you sort of try to work regular hours? Yeah, we work nine to five. I mean, you know, nine to five often gets translated into like eight thirty to uh, six thirty, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it's definitely, you know, you know, we're all got girlfriends or wives in the studio and, you know, we're not kids anymore. We're not 22, 23. So, you know, we, we try to work to schedule the rest of the world. And I think, you know, that actually really helps too, just to not be killing ourselves all the time, you know, being up at three in the morning, trying to get stuff out that's late or whatever. It's, you know, nope, I work nine to five and then I go home and I hang out, mm-hmm. you know, with my wife and, and relax. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? How did, yeah. how did, how did, uh, I guess, four star studios come about? Um, I know that you guys have probably talked about this a lot. I've never talked to any of you about it specifically for a podcast, I don't think. But, you know, what was the idea behind it? How did it gel? It, I mean, the, the the really, the simple answer is we, we had a drink and draw that um, we've had in Chicago for six years. But uh, a lot of the guys that would go to drink and draw were guys that I worked with at Devil's Due and was, was pretty good friends with. And uh, we were just, I, I had left, uh, I was I had been using some space from Devil's Due, kind of renting out um studio space from them, even though I wasn't working for them anymore. And then they were, they're going to move spaces and I, you know, I didn't want to move again. So it was the option was, you know, move home or, or rent a space for myself. And, uh, I just, you know, the, the realization was, is that I can't just work by myself at home. I'll go fucking crazy. You know, I just, I can't do it. I, I don't, I don't think it's good for me. I, I work better with people and it, especially, you know, drink and draw kind of taught me that like sitting down with people and jamming and drawing and having beers was something that, you know, helped me be a better creator. And I think, um, helped me f- stop, not be so, you know, like I think after a while you're, uh, you get atrophy of social skills if you work at home too long. Um, so I, you know, I just brought it up to the guys at drink and draw. First I asked Norton cause you know, he's, he and I've been friends the longest and uh, he did it because he felt bad for me. Uh, <laughs> didn't want me to be by myself. And then Josh, our friend uh, Josh Emmons, who was a um, comic, comic book writer and a, a programmer, had just gotten over um, uh, cancer treatment, and he was rearing to get back into the world. You know, he'd spent an entire like you know six months at home or whatever. He was just ready ready to go. And uh, our friend Sean, who's a graphic designer, was getting sick of working at home, so. It just kind of struck at the right time, and you know, Mike even came to love it after uh, really liking working at home and only doing this because he thought I would not be able to find anybody to do it. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, it just ha- you know it happened that our our sort of views on things really mesh well. Um, I think we all sort of have the same goals as far as what kind of comics we want to make, and uh, you know our work ethic is really really the same. So yeah, it works out really well. That's very cool. I, I it, you know there's a couple of sort of examples of things like that happening, but not I can't think of another one right now, and uh, it, it's very cool. Um, I guess the last sort of thing on the and these are these are all projects you're writing. I think are you are you drawing anything now? Well, I'm drawing Exsanguine, which is oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, but so I, that was what I was going to ask you about. But I guess you're drawing. How do you have time for all this anyway? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's going to work out, I think, because um, I had plenty of lead time on Exsanguine, so I've been doubling up on all. You know, I've been writing all the scripts I, I have to do early. And Exsanguine, I'm working with my other studio mate, Josh Emmons, on it. Um, this will be sort of his first uh, published, you know, wi- widely published uh, freelance uh, work. But uh, he and I kind of came up with this idea together at Drink a Draw, actually. And um, so when Dark Horse went, you know, they asked me to pitch some stuff and I pitched them that and they really liked it. I was like, well, this was co-created with this dude. So he wants to work on it together. And so we did. And uh, yeah, I'll be, you know, I'm kind of providing the basic sort of structure and ideas for it, but this is all Josh. I mean, you know, I've thrown in a lot of ideas and um, I designed the characters, but so far, you know, Josh has been doing the lion's share of the work and I'm sort of acting as the, um, the evil emperor editor guy that sort of shoots down ideas. So, um, <laughs> so you're kind of drawing a book on the side. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, once it starts, it'll be, it'll be, I'll be all in. But as far as right now, you know, I've I've been doing the covers for the book, and then I'll start drawing it June first. So I have to be ready to go by next Friday. But um, but in the meantime, like to alleviate the pain that could happen from doing so many books, I've just been writing like crazy, and you know, I should be ahead enough that I won't go insane. Is it? I mean, I know that you said you like sort of being in this in the collective situation with everybody, but like, are you? Are you like I, I think of myself, I wouldn't be able able to script with everybody around because I keep getting distracted and find a reason not to do it. <laughs> like, does it does that work out better for you? Uh, I mean, it didn't at first, but one of the things you know, I I always thought of this thing. You know, my my dad is a welder and he hangs upside down and welds stuff at power plants, and he doesn't get to choose how he works. He just has to do the job, you know. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I decided was going to be was that I was going to be able to write with other people around. I was gonna be able to draw with other people around. I was going to be able to write in an airplane or a, like I've got to do the job and that means I have to be able to do it anywhere, you know? So it took a while. (laughs) Um, and sometimes it's tough, you know, people talking and stuff can throw me off, but, um, but no, I mean, that was one of the goals was, you know, if I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to be someone who doesn't have to be alone and, um, you know, up at three in the morning to do it. You know, it's just, I think I'll be less, insane that way i can't it's it's really interesting i can't think of anybody else in comic everybody everybody in comics who i know who is a writer is exactly the opposite thing i mean they might give themselves hours or whatever but they're chained up by themselves and 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 sort of yeah. doing that so it's interesting I, I think a lot of thing about i mean maybe it's because i've done both sides of things but mm-hmm. and i've certainly worked with a lot of writers but writers in general seem to punish themselves i think and i think a lot of it is an insecurity like or an egocentrism. I'm not sure. Maybe both. They're the same. They are the same. Yeah, and and I, that is probably true. So, <laughs> but one of the things that, you know, I wanted this to, 
be my approach was, you know, it's not going to be about ego. It's not going to be about that thing. It's going to be about getting out stories and doing a good job and, you know, not, not obsessing about it. Like I, I don't, I don't want to die, you know, like I just too many (laughs) writers, like, like too many people kill themselves, like working insane hours and being tormented by their stories. And like, though some of that is inevitable. I think, I think you can circumvent it. I, I think, you know, there's, there's no need to, to be the guy at the diner at two in the morning, like smacking his head against the table and eating bad food and, you know, suffering so that you can write. I just, I don't, I'm not down, man. I'm just right. not doing it. You know, right. is he, does your writing come to you relatively easily? I mean, are, it doesn't sound to me like you're, uh, you're torching yourself over every word. Like you sort of, are you sort of taking down what comes out and, and going with it? Um, you know, kind of, I mean, it takes me a lot, you know, I used to be that way and, mm-hmm. and I'm not anymore. I mean, it is more painful birthing process than it used to be. Um, you'd think you'd get more, you know, flexible and stuff over time, but it seems to be the opposite. But, you know, to sort of counter that, um, I'm definitely trying to be a little more, you know, spontaneous and sort of, you know, just, I, I don't lament every word, but I do sort of you know, obsess over characters and, and direction. And, um, but I also try to, you know, I mean, you, you want to throw in a little bit of that Jack Kirby in the mix, like mm-hmm. that old school comic making, which was, you didn't necessarily know what was going to happen. You, you didn't have it a hundred percent planned out all the time, you know, and you, you made things and sometimes that spontaneity made them greater. So it's a balance. I, I mean, so far I, I think it's working, but you know, Certainly, there are people who have mastered a different way of doing it, and it works wonderfully for them. You know, yeah, everybody does their thing. How are you as as a scripter? Are you a really because you came from an art background? Are you more detailed? Are you more uh, sort of basic with your directions, or does it depend on who you're working with? I mean, my scripts are, you know, I don't write loose. I wouldn't say I write loose scripts. I mean, they're broken down. Every panel is decided upon, um, and all the dialogue is there before anyone starts drawing. I just can't do it the other way around. But, um, but I mean, you know, it, there is some flexibility in there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I tried doing Marvel style. Mike, Mike and I did Marvel style in the first issue of Revival. And um, I did it. And then I was like, I can't do this ever again. I just, it's, I'm too anal. I just can't handle it. But, but it's not painful. I mean, it's, you know, there's room in there for, for doing different things and, and, and being spontaneous. And, and, you know, it's, yeah, I'm still working on the process. I, I had a guy ask me to do Marvel style on a thing, and I just I couldn't even imagine it. I I, I wouldn't even know where to start with that. It's it seemed like the oddest thing. I mean, the thing is, is that the only person I could have done it with was Norton because sure. I trust his his panels and stuff. But the problem I had was that if I don't know what these people are saying, I don't know what the story is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I had to sort of go over it again and tweak a lot of things because if the story isn't that, if 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 I don't know what the characters are telling other people, I don't really, I don't really know what the gist of it is. You know, I, I don't, I know people who think visibly, visually, and I've watched friends of mine write a comic by drawing little pictures. You know, mm-hmm. that's how they wrote it. I can't do that. <laughs> I think, just, I think, I think Ron Mars does that. Does he really? He breaks down them into little, little pages and then, and then puts in dialogue later. And I was like, that's nuts, but. I can't do that. Yeah, it all it all works. What is that? What's the sort of uh, is the, what's sort of your challenge? What's the hard thing for you when you're putting together a script? Like, what's the 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 hurdle? Uh, like the the thing that you that sort of keeps you up a little bit. 
Like, is uh, there an aspect to, to the writing? Yeah, there's definitely. I mean, the hardest part for me in writing is, um, is knowing what to tell mm-hmm. and what not to tell. Um, you know, I mean, cause I, I, I don't know. I struggle with this thing in comics, which is that as a kid, a lot of the comics that I read were very sort of, you know, heavy on the exposition and explaining everything. And that has, that's very much gone right now in comics, but Part of me says, well, every issue should be so accessible, but I don't want to load things down with exposition. So, so the biggest problem always is, do I retell this or do I let it go? And it being sort of, um, you know, vague and immaterial is good. You know, that's the hardest part. And essentially, you know, with with other people's stuff and years of continuity on a Marvel superhero book or something, it's a little easier to decide what you have to do exposition on. But that's something like a horror book like Revival, you know, it's in attempt to do it as sort of naturalistic as possible. A lot of exposition just really messes stuff up. So yeah, that's the, that's always what kills me. You know, it's that, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the David Mamet, the letter that he wrote to the writers of the mm-hmm. of that show. What was the show? The un- is it the unit? Yeah. The unit, right? Yeah. He wrote this letter. That's all this like exposition shit and all this like, and it's great, but it's like part of it. Well, I can't, you can't do that. You have to sometimes get this stuff out, you know? Yeah, it's the great. It seems like it's one of the great challenges of modern comics is to figure out how much uh, like modern comics they want to be, or how much like old comics they want to be. And there's no winning. Bitload, you know. I mean, it's just, you know, it's is it is it like uh, academic, you know, examples of writing? Well, no, but it's supposed to communicate with people the ideas, and they need to know who these people are, and you know, they're coming. Every issue is a new is is the first time someone's read it. So yeah, it's tough. You know, you don't want to just say, eh, screw it." Well, there's also that question of trying to figure out what a reader wants. Like, you know, because some people can't want to be fed all the details, and they'll go, "Oh, I didn't know what was going on." And then other people go, "Well, I, I get the gist of it." You know, so what? What? Which one of those things counts as as you know, new reader friendly, whatever, whatever that is. Boy. Yeah, um, I don't. It's tough. I mean, that's and that's. I think that's something that um, no one has found the perfect solution to. No. You know, I mean, stuff that has a really basic idea, like I was just reading the Landry Walker's um, the Supergirl Adventures in the eighth grade. And like the, the, if the basic thing is Supergirl's a teenage girl and she's an alien and she's trying to skirt responsibilities by being a superhero. It's like that's simple and perfect. And you basically only have to reiterate that once issue. And it's not, you know, those details don't bog down anything. But like something with a big mystery or, or extended amount of characters, oh man, it's killer. <laughs> well, do you tend to think of it as just like, well, this is like a novel; it's just coming out serialized. I don't think you can do that. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it, it's not. You know, it's not a novel coming out serialized. It's a comic book, and you know, it, it's. I think for a little while we were doing that in comics, and it got a little. We screwed up, yeah, we we screwed up bad. So, you know, we weren't getting any new new readers. I mean, obviously. It, I don't think it should be that you have to recap everything every time because, you know, the first comic you read, you probably went, all right, so I, obviously there's this guy that he's the bad guy. I don't know everything about him. Amazing Spider-Man 311. I, I picked it up. I was fine. Sure. <laughs> you were good. But the things that they had to reiterate are like yeah. the things that make those characters well, who they are. You know, that every issue you had to have reaffirmation of what what made Spider-Man Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that's a tough thing that I'm, I've always, I always struggle with. Well, it's an art, not a science, I guess. So that's true. Yeah. Cool. Well, I th- I think that that's all that I've got for you. Um, 
and thanks. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, man. Sorry if I went over time a little bit there. There was no... I, I just looked. I was like, I don't know how long I've been talking. I just ran out of things to ask. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's fine. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you. I want to thank Tim for taking the time to talk to us tonight about his wide and varied career. You can find links to uh, all things about Tim, his Twitter link, and links to Four Star Studios on the post for this podcast on ifanboy.com. And you can go there and check out all the other stuff that's going on around there. Meanwhile, we'll be back with more stuff about comics almost every single day at iFanboy. That's what we do, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks.